0: This morning, Pastor John will be preaching from the book of Jonah. So I invite you to turn to Jonah, chapter 3, verse 10. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Jonah. Jonah, chapter 3, reading through chapter 4, verse 11. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, Then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious and compassionate God slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. And the Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head and to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. And it came about when the sun came up that God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And Jonah said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work, and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. And should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and left, as well as many animals? If the only feeling that you feel toward a
1: person or toward a city is disgusted anger, probably you won't have a significant ministry to that person or to that city. Now, the reason I say probably is because you might overcome the feeling of anger and disgust that you feel toward a person or a city And say what needs to be said for some reason other than love, like fear of judgment maybe. And God might take what you said out of a loveless heart and save the city. He might do that. That's exactly what he did for Jonah. Jonah despised the Ninevites. He despised them. God saved him through his preaching. Now that's real important to see today, especially. Real important. God can use people who do right things for wrong reasons. God can love through you when you are not loving through him. That's absolutely important to realize. God can do more than you imagined through you. Now the point of this book, however, is, Jonah, you shouldn't be like that. <laughs> right? Do you do well to be angry? You do not do well to be angry. You ought to feel more than disgust for the Ninevites. You ought to feel more than anger about their sin. Something's wrong in this prophet. And the point of this book is, the whole point of this book is, What kind of heart should urban prophets have? That's the point of the book. Not one like Jonah's, okay? He's a bad example. He is a counter example. The book is to be understood as the opposite of what it is. He was not what he was supposed to be. Now we need to remember this. When we head out of this building in about a half an hour to walk this one point Seven miles of Nineveh. If every person in this room felt only disgust towards Minneapolis. And it's sin. It's cynicism. It's godlessness. It's liberalism or whatever. If that's all we felt, God might save the city this morning. He could do it. That, That might be just like God. That's what he did for Jonah. And it's amazing. Isn't it amazing that he did that for Jonah? I just, when I see that, I am simply stunned that God would do that through Jonah. Have you ever heard anybody say, God can't use a dirty vessel? Well meant, overstated. Right? Overstated. What was Jonah if he wasn't dirty? He was selfish. He was racist, he was pitiless, he was angry that God had mercy, and God used it to save a whole city. Now here's why I stress this. Because you know what Satan's going to say in the next 20 minutes to some of you, maybe a lot of you? He's going to say this. You recognize his voice now because I'm telling you what he's going to say. He's going to say, you're going to march in a praise procession? I'm sure you're going to march in a praise procession as though you love God, as though you praise God. You don't even love your wife. And you're going to go out there? You are a first-class hypocrite to hit those streets and claim to be praising God. So you just better leave praise to the pure in heart and go home. Said that to anybody this morning? Now, here's what you say back to him. Okay? You say back to him God saved Nineveh through a selfish man. I know a few things, Satan. I know God is God. I know I need God. I know this city needs God more than it needs anything. I'm going to go out and say that in front of all these people, no matter what's inside of me. You go jump in a lake. And then you come. Now, that's the point of this book in large, large measure. That may be all you can say this morning. Namely, okay, maybe I'm like Joe, Satan. Maybe that's the way I am. Maybe I am a hypocrite. Maybe I don't love God. Maybe when I sang those songs at the beginning, I really didn't want the Holy Spirit to come. Maybe I just do everything from the surface and inside, I'm just dead men's bones. Maybe so, but one thing I know, I can choose to go out there and believe that God in His mercy might come down and touch me and give me a heart for this city. And I'm going. That may be all you can say. That's fine. I think God has more for a lot of you this morning than that, however. I think God wants to change us and give us a heart for the city. Jonah wrote the book. He wrote the book. Okay? I think Jonah got it. I think Jonah got the message. He wrote the book. And so he left it for us. He's a very humble man, evidently, to let his horrible sin show through. But he wrote it. And God will enable you to write your book someday. Now, here's what we're going to do in these few minutes we have to look at Jonah. God did four things with and for Jonah to make his heart a heart for the city. And I want to show you these four things and dwell on the last one a little more uh, long, farther than the others. Number one, God revealed to Jonah the ways in which he and Jonah agreed. Nobody in this room is totally in disagreement with God this morning. You may be in large disagreement with God, but not total disagreement with God. Let me point out the things in which God and Jonah agree. Number one, Nineveh is wicked. Chapter 1, verse 2, God agrees with that. Number two, God can save rebels miraculously. The fish. Remember the fish, kids? Remember the fish? The point of the fish is God can save rebels miraculously. Number three. Jonah agrees that God is gracious. In fact, number four, he not only agrees that God is gracious, he deeply suspects God's gonna be gracious to this city, and he doesn't like it. He really thinks God's gonna do it. He's gonna save Minneapolis, and he's upset because it's a bad city, and he doesn't want it to happen. Now, that's number two. God also reveals the disagreements. We got four agreements, there's a disagreement. Let me give you a, a quiz, kids. I know that there's no Sunday school this morning, so I'm going to give you a Sunday school quiz. I did this to my sons, and they failed at the, at the breakfast table this morning. I told them I, asked, I, told them I was going to say that. and uh, in fact, In fact, they got zero. Because I only asked one question, and they missed it. Now, here's the question. Here's the question, kids. Don't raise your hand, because you'll be embarrassed, probably, unless you've had real good parents... That's not a good thought. Here's the question. Why did Jonah, if I say Noah before this sermon is over, would you just forgive me? I know I'm going to say Noah one of these times. Why did Jonah not go to Nineveh the first time? Don't say it out loud. Just think it. Why did Jonah not go to Nineveh? He got the answer? I wonder how many of you are saying, like my kid said, because he was afraid of the Ninevites. He was afraid. That's the wrong answer. The right answer is right here in chapter 4, verse 2. Let's read it. I pray the Lord, is not this, namely that you just relented and didn't judge these people, is not this what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and repenting of evil. I didn't want to go to Tarshish, no, to Nineveh, because I knew you were going to forgive them.
0: That doesn't come through
1: in Sunday school somehow. Unless I'm totally wrong and have two really weird kids. It's not coming through in Sunday school that this is a bad prophet. He's a bad guy. Not just because he disobeys out of fear. There's not a word about that in the text. In fact, he's so brave he says, throw me overboard. This guy's got guts. He does what he doesn't like to do. He is merciless. He is pitiless toward Minneapolis and towards Nineveh. That's the disagreement between God who says in verse 11, chapter 4, Should not I pity Nineveh? You don't pity Nineveh. I pity Nineveh. We don't agree, prophet. You're my prophet and we don't agree. That's the disagreement. That's number two. Now, number three, what God does is treat this merciless, pitiless prophet with the same mercy that he treats Nineveh. He treats his prophet with the same mercy that he treats Nineveh. In fact, Jonah's life hangs on the mercy that he despises. His life hangs on the mercy that That he despises. Let me show you three mercies. You you know them. Number one, the mercy of the fish, right? He was thrown overboard. He deserved to be thrown overboard. He should have drowned in with him, get another prophet, and God saved him with the fish. That's mercy number one. He saved him. Mercy number two, the plant. Now the plant doesn't, the plant is as important as the fish in this book. It's more important than the fish. But we don't, we don't talk about the plant. So let's talk about the plant for a minute. Chapter four, verse six. There's a plant in this story. The situation is, he goes through, he preaches, angry, self-centered. God saves him. He says, rats! They saved him. He goes outside the city. He sits down. He sulks. The sun is shining down on him, making him hot. And God causes a plant to grow up to give him shade. Look at verse 6. And the Lord God appointed a plant. That's exactly the same words for appointed a fish. The Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might put shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. That's incredible. What a God. I mean, I can't believe it. That's not the way I act. This is why I'm preaching on this text. You act that way? Somebody somebody does exactly the opposite, feels all the opposite things you want them to feel, and you make a plant grow up over their heads so that they'll have shade and will be freed, freed, freed from their discomfort, not keeping discomfort upon them. What a God. What a God. Third mercy. God asks questions instead of making indictments. It's amazing. Watch it. Verse 4. After, in verse 3, Jonah is so mad, he'd rather die than see Nineveh saved. God says to him, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? (laughs) Well, just tell him the truth. No, no, I won't tell him the truth. I will get him to tell me the truth. Do you do well to be angry? That's question number one. Then look at verse 9. The plant dies. Jonah's so upset about the plant. does Not not upset about Nineveh. He's upset about the plant. And verse 9. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? Not... I mean, you could just hear the the possible. Jonah's life is hanging by the thread of grace that he hates. He's living on the mercy he despises. And so are we whenever we despise mercy toward Minneapolis. The last thing, the fourth thing God does is give reasons for why he has pity. And I just pray now that the Lord will touch us, touch me, you, with these reasons from verses 10 and 11 for why he has pity on Minneapolis and Nineveh. Number one, verse 10. The Lord said, you pity the plant. Now just stop right there and think with me about this. You pity the plant. What's that mean? Because in verse 9, he said, do you do well to be angry about the plant? So what's this pity business? What does pity mean? Did Jonah pity the plant? You pity the plant. You know what I think's going on here? Pity is being defined by God for Jonah as being mad that a worm ruined the plant. And, and God is saying, okay, you pitied the plant, shouldn't I pity Nineveh? There's a worm factor. If you relate to somebody, and all they do is produce the opposite of what you want them to produce for you, or if they fall short of your expectations or God's laws, pity will be born of the worm factor, in part, the Satan factor, the serpent factor you've got to reckon with the fact that there's a worm factor in the world it helps there's a worm factor in this plant this did this plant didn't just decide to wilt it was killed. Nineveh is guilty and sinful and wicked, and God is angry at Nineveh yes, but it wasn't just that that's not all there is to it there's a worm factor, and I pity Nineveh. In part, God says, because like the plant, there's a worm factor. Number two, you pity the plant for which you did not labor nor make it grow. Now, you got to get the contrast here to get the point. You pity the plant for which you didn't labor, you didn't make it grow. What's the point? The contrast. i worked on Nineveh. I've worked on Nineveh for centuries. We have the notion, don't we? Cities are autonomous. I mean, they just grow up. They just come into being. They are their own thing. That's not true. Not a city on the face of this world came into being without God's work. Every bit of wisdom, every bit of energy, every bit of initiative, every bit of organizational ability, all the architectural skills, all the engineering skills, everything that it takes to make a city, God made. And God sustains. This is God's city this thing called Minneapolis, he made it. All of its waterworks, all of its sewer system, its electricity, its traffic plan, its government structures and laws and ordinances, its educational and cultural and technical and entertainment institutions, they are all begotten by the gifts, the power, the wisdom, the enabling, the sustaining of our Creator God. They are his. Minneapolis is his. And this plant... That Jonas, so mad, has been taken away, he didn't do anything to make it happen. And God's done everything to make this city happen. Therefore, he is very slow to judge the work of his hands. This is his city. He made it. He holds it in being. Its distortions are people because people took his image in their heart and twisted it. That's number two. Number three. Still in verse 10. You pity the plant for which you did not labor nor make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. What's the point of that? The contrast again. This this plant lasted one night and it's gone. And you're all upset about it. I've been working on Nineveh for centuries. You know the first time Nineveh is mentioned in the Bible? Genesis 10. It's an old, old city. And God's been at work in Nineveh for centuries, maybe thousands of years. You feel bad about that plan? I'll feel bad about Nineveh if it goes down. I've been investing 1,000 years of my heart into that city. They've been twisting and distorting and ruining all of my energy and all my gifting and all of my image. But it's mine. It's my city, and I've been working a long time. How old is Minneapolis? When did Minneapolis get started? Well, probably we could go back to the Indian culture. Indians here before we were here. God's been at work through an Indian culture here. 1680, Father Louis Hennepin, a Belgian, comes up the river. First white man to ever lay eyes on Saint Anthony Falls, and and there's an old picture, so interesting, it's preserved in my old world book encyclopedia. An old picture of Lewis Hennepin standing at the falls with a cross, blessing this area, three hundred and twelve years ago. Now I ask you, I wonder, what? Inheritance we have in this church, an open door, and Wooddale, and North Heights, and Bloomington's Assembly, First Baptist, and you pick out a church you know. What, what inheritance we have come into because 300 years ago, a man blessed this city. He lifted the cross of Jesus over and he said, for centuries to come, oh God, take this area, guard it, Vanish evil from it. Bless it. Let there be a thriving city grow up here that's beautiful, that glorifies your name, that's filled with praising people. I believe we've come into an inheritance from Lewis Hennepin. And who knows but that he prayed things for us that have not yet been fulfilled. I'm looking for him. I'm praying toward them. I'm adding my blessing. We're going to add our blessing. Just picture yourself walking through the city now in just a few minutes. With Louis Hennepin, 1680, lifting the cross over this area and saying, Bless it. Bless it. Bless it. Redeem it. Save it. Have mercy upon Minneapolis. Pity it with the pity with which you pitied Nineveh. Number four. There are just two more. Number four, verse 11. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than a 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left? Now, that might mean children. A lot of interpreters take that to mean children who haven't grown up enough to know their right hand from their left. I, I suspect, however, that that's probably not what it means. Nowhere else in the, new, in the, in the Bible. Our children described as those who don't know their right hand from their left. And the generic word for human, Adam, is used here. And so I'm inclined to think what he means is people who are so morally disoriented, they don't know the simplest, basic rights and wrongs. It's what Jesus was praying about on the cross when he said, Father, forgive them, the ones who just drove the nails through my hands, forgive them because they don't know what they've done. What do you mean they don't know what they've done? Well, they know they've done something, but they are so morally disoriented that it's not computing at all. They're killing the Son of God. And that's what God saw when he looked down at Nineveh. People who don't know their right hand from their left morally. Knowing your right hand from, from your left is crucial for following basic instructions. So when you go out of here turn right on 13th, when you get to 9th take a right, when you get to 11th take a left, when you get to Franklin take a right, when you get to Park take a right, when you get to 8th take a right, stop at Elliot, go in to your right, there's the hot dogs. If you can't if you don't know your right and your left, you're like a sheep who just kind of follows wherever anybody else goes and you get into big trouble if you have bad leaders that way. These people are so disoriented morally that when God says things like, Thou shalt not kill, writes it right on their heart. They look at it and they they kill. They kill their children. The book refers to violence. They kill. When God saw that, he doesn't just feel anger. He feels pity. Because there's a weakness factor as well as a worm factor. Psalm 103, he Knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Finally, number five. This book ends in the most unbelievable way. And besides 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left, there are many cattle. Animals. Well, now that's strange. I could just hear the animal rights people with that one. Oh. You see, God puts animals on a high plane equal to man. He doesn't want them killed. Don't eat any meat, etc. There's a problem with that interpretation. Number 1, God ordains that cattle be killed every day in the sacrificial system. Number 2, Genesis 9.3 says he gave you all living things for meat. This is not an animal rights verse. Well, what in the world is it then? Here's my guess. I'm not sure, but I'll tell you my opinion. I think what God is saying is everything in that city, its buildings, its lakes, its parking lots, its trees, its beautiful clean air, I made and I made it for a purpose to be used to bless man. The Sabbath is for man and everything I make is for man's use for my glory. I made cattle not to be destroyed in fire and brimstone. I don't rejoice in the cavalier willy-nilly destruction of anything. I rejoice when everything I made is put to its appropriate use. When Sodom and Gomorrah were were destroyed with fire and brimstone, everything died. Everything died. And God looks down at that, even though He did it, and He says, I don't like to see the animals die like that. I have ordained animals for a purpose. For food. For pulling plows for being pets. I have have ordained animals for a purpose and they ought not to be just swept away willy-nilly in the flood. And therefore, I don't delight to pour out judgment on Nineveh. I want things to fall in for their usefulness that I created them for. The point of all this now as I close is that in spite of sin, in spite of rebellion, in spite of immorality, in spite of the cynicism and religious skepticism of our city. God pities this city. God feels pity for Minneapolis right now. And He's calling us right now to share His heart. It's not sentimental and romantic as though there's no anger. God's angry at Nineveh and He sends a message of gospel truth to rescue people from His own anger. But He's a man. Jesus is a man. Of pity, And God is a great being of pity. And I invite you now, if you're still in the place of Jonah, just to come and believe that God will use you in your selfishness. That's okay. If that's where you are, come. If He's beginning to touch you and give you the heart of God for the city, come and I believe He has ordained this praise procession to further that work in our lives. I believe that the people We are at the beginning of the procession, will not be the people we will be at the end of the procession. It will be an hour-long work of transformation. God changes people when they lift their voices in public in praise to Him. We're going to do some of it before we go out, but let's pray before we do. Father, I praise You for being a God that asks questions instead of merely condemning, for being a God who treats Jonah with mercy when he's despising the very mercy on which he lives. I thank you so much for your patience, and I thank you for Minneapolis. I thank you for the blessing of Louis Hennepin, 300 and... 12 or whatever years ago. And I thank you for the blessing that will rise to you in a few minutes on the streets.
0: Come, fit us, empower us, I pray, in Jesus' name.